Walking Each Other Home is an exploration of the many ways we cultivate wisdom, compassion, and love in our lives. Mirabai Bush talks with some of her many diverse friends about what they're learning now from their spiritual paths and practices. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Mirabai. Hi. Thanks to everyone who left ratings and reviews for this podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. The winners of the John Densmore The Seekers Book Giveaway have the following usernames, which are also a standalone freestyle poem if you listen to them all. <laughs> Cave Town Michael, Buddha Punker, Mahalo Nikki, PJ Wah, Chuck X from Houston. Please email info at beherenownetwork.com and we will give you instruction on how to claim your prize. While the book giveaway is over, ratings and reviews are still welcomed. Thanks and thanks for helping us uh, launch this podcast. It's a great joy with many wonderful speakers coming up. So welcome. Hi everyone, this is Mirabai Bush. On walking each other home. And on this podcast, we've been exploring the many ways in which people wake up to the spirit, how each of our stories helps others wake up as we walk each other home. Neem Karoli Baba said, Sub Ek, the spirit is all one, but the paths to getting there are as diverse as we are. So today, we're going to talk to Badisha Banerjee, my friend, about how she has been awakened by a river, not just any river, but the great holy Ganges of India. In, in looking at how the river can be saved, cleaned up so that uh, it can continue to be a source of fertility for feeding millions of people, Badisha, who is curious, passionate, and deep, writes that major environmental change is more than a technological challenge. It's an adaptive challenge, which requires a cultural and spiritual change in us, in all of us. Badisha's connection with the Ganga comes from her family roots in Calcutta, India, but she discovered it after growing up in Kansas and graduating from Yale College and Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, the great Yale School of Forestry. It's been responsible for a lot of really good environmental work over these years with a master in social ecology. We first knew each other through the founding of the Dalai Lama Fellows, which empowered millennials from 30 countries addressing community needs at the intersection of justice, peace, and ecology. She's the author of Superhuman River, Stories of the Ganga. So welcome, Vidisha. I'm so happy we're finally doing this. This is great. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, Before we dive into the book, tell us how you first knew about Ramdas. 
Well, that is a great story. Um, when I was a teenager in Lawrence, Kansas, my high school teacher, Tom Bird, um, supervised an independent study in which I read a lot of the work of Ramdas and some of his contemporaries, um, like Timothy Leary and um, you know Carlos Castaneda. I was just very like in retrospect, I guess I was looking at countercultural, um, spiritual, psychedelic, um, you know, uh, luminaries, um, and it felt I, I felt very drawn to Ramdas in particular because you know on that list of names, he was somebody who had reached um, the pinnacle of the intellectual um, kind of uh, tradition in the West as a professor at Harvard and Berkeley. Um, and yet, you know, after his explorations in the psychedelic realm, he actually ended up in a very traditional place um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. at the feet of <laughs> Karoli Baba. And... Um, for someone like me who was raised in India and then came to the U.S., um, you know, when I was about 10 years old, uh, I was really looking for people who had kind of done that um, cross-cultural journey before me and, you know, had managed to balance um, the question of, you know, what does it mean to be Indian? What does it mean to be American? Um, by holding it in a much wider perspective. So very indebted to Ramdas. And then, you know, since then, I was really lucky to attend his memorial service. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you for inviting me to that because I actually hadn't known as much about him, you know, in his later years. And so, you know, watching the documentaries, um, just, you know, learning about his deep connection to um, Hawaii in particular, but also just, you know, the ways in which he inspired, you know, so many people um, with just his loving presence. Um, I realized there are a lot of guided meditations I could listen to online. And, you know, it's funny, in a way, he's become a, a much larger figure in my life after his passing, because I, I, I feel like, you know, there's something really miraculous that happened for me when I attended the service. And I just you know, felt really lit up and wanted to know more. And um, uh, yes, yeah, so I want to thank you for uh, exposing me to that. Wow, that is a great response. It's interesting, you know, over these years, I have uh, made many friends in this country who are Indian or Indian American. And I always thought of it in terms of me really enjoying people, Indian people, because I loved living in India and had, it, it was so important for me in so many ways. But now that you're speaking, I realize that, you know, maybe some of those friends were um, drawn to me and to Ramdas, you know, to um, because we had that appreciation of of Hinduism and and Buddhism and India itself. It's nice. That makes me happy. Um, so I wanted you to tell us before we start talking about the Ganga, if you can tell us something about your name. Oh, my name. Um, well, my name comes from a modernist poem by um, Jibanananda Dash. Um, he's a Bengali poet. Um, and um, in that poem, there's a kind of wanderer, traveler, who's been traveling through eons, going to all these different places in search of something. And at last, he, or actually in search of a mysterious woman. And um, at one point, her hair is compared to 
um, the darkness of the and kind of mysteriousness of the fate of the Bidisha, who are an indigenous tribe, um, perhaps a Buddhist tribe, and the central state of Madhya Pradesh. And there's actually a, a city, you know, lost city, or I don't know, like a sort of uninhabited city, but there's a, a sign that someone once found for me, um, you know, that says Bidisha. That is great. Thank you. I didn't know that. Um, so your book is called Superhuman River. Um, what does being superhuman mean for, for the river and for you? Well, for the river, um, you know, it, the Ganga has been worshipped as a living goddess um, for millennia. And so it, it's not just any river, you know, it's considered as a, a mother, as a goddess, um, and it figures very prominently in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana um, and, you know, in a lot of popular um, imagination. Like, uh, you know, many people would often use the Ganga as a people's court or judiciary. So to swear on the Ganga was considered holier than, you know, uh, any holy book. There was no tradition, you know, before colonialism of, you know, taking an oath on the Gita or anything like that. But to swear on the Ganga was considered, you know, equivalent, if not more. And um, there's also this belief that the water from the Ganga had the so much purity that it could uh, cleanse one's sins, and um, that to be ha to have one's ashes uh, immersed in the Ganga could. Um, lead to liberation from the cycle of life and death. Pretty great. Um, for me, when I use the title Superhuman River, um, thank you. Um, when I use the title Superhuman River, it actually also means um, that, that actually it's we humans who have become superhuman and the river in some ways has become, um, you know, much more malleable, um, to our impact than ha people had imagined was possible, you know, before the 20th century. So, um, you know, since we live in the age of climate change and it's now called the Anthropocene, um, it's a time when, you know, humans have the power to shape our Earth's climate. And similarly, you know, we've also shaped the river over the last uh, several millennia, but very intensively in the last like 100, 200 years. Um, and so I want people to look at our own responsibility as a superhuman species. And, you know, one question I ask is, how do we get good at that, at being superhuman, um, taking responsibility and sort of um, growing ourselves, you know, growing the, the skills and ways of being that are needed um, to have as much power as we do? Beautiful. Um, you mentioned uh, in the book, Devotional Ecology which is a phrase I just love. Um, do you want to say something about what that means to you? Um, sure. So um, in my book, when I traveled from source to sea along the river um, on several different journeys over the course of 10 years, um, I encountered in the Himalayas um, this idea that um, a fetch on a recognition you know, where people felt that their personal identity was inseparable from their relationship to the river. And um, it's that type of um, maybe 
devotion that I feel we're lacking in our modern world. There's been a sort of disenchantment, you know, with modernism. And I, I believe that it's important for us to look for kind of a selective re-enchantment. Um, you know, I'm not, I would be the last person to advocate in favor of religious fundamentalism. And, and for those of the rest of us who have been educated in science and, you know, are consider ourselves fairly like middle of the road, um, or maybe we consider ourselves spiritual, but not religious, as many people in my generation do, um, you know, I think. Uh, there needs to be a space where we can experience reverence for our rivers and for water and consider it as holy. Um, tell us about the time when that really began to happen for you, when you went to the source. Sure. So, you know, I... Um, I'll read just a little bit from the very beginning of my book. Um, where I wrote about oh, how, uh, so it's called, and then I'll get to the part about going to the source, because this is the very beginning. This is when the river was, you know, first became holy to me. So I was, um, this, this part is called Dispatch from the Bucket Path, and it starts like this. My first bathtub was a red bucket. It came with a red mug. I was small enough to fit inside the bucket filled with cold tap water. Ganga, Ganga, my grandmother and mother taught me to say out loud. We rarely visited the river, so I didn't know how to picture it, but there it was at the end of every bath, rolling off my tongue once I'd climbed out of the bucket, punctuating the thrilling moment when the whole bucket was emptied onto my head with a colossal splash. Ganga, ganga. <laughs> and, you know, for my family, uttering the Ganga's name was an unquestioned morning ritual passed from generation to generation. Um, but I, I didn't know what it meant to live with the understanding that this river had carried away all my ancestors' ashes and not to mention their sins. And then, um, you know, that. after many years, like fast forward 20 years, I um, what had, you know, while at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, um, they recently changed their name to Yale School of the Environment. Um, uh -huh. I was studying with um, Dean Gusbeck, who was behind... Um, many of the um, you know, important organizations like the Natural Resources Defense Council and the World Resources Institute, and we used to head the United Nations Environment Program. He has a book called The Bridge at the Edge of the World, where he just has all these graphs that show you know, just the um, depletion in the Earth's natural resources and wildlife that has happened since the first Earth Day, which you know, I'm sure he was a big part of helping to create um, in 1971. So, it, it was from him that I got this idea that kind of reawakening a new consciousness, you know, is a, is, is a really critical part of our environmental mission going forward because the policy changes that, you know, um, have been won um, have not been enough. Um, and as, so as I tried to understand what is my part of that, you know, I went to the top of East Rock, which is a, a, a little tiny mountain in New Haven. And, you know, I just felt like I really wanted to go back to India and explore this river. And part of what gave me the courage to do that was something called the India Climate Solutions Road Tour. And sometimes, Mirabai, when you tell stories about you and Ramdas and the rest of your friends, um, you know, this idea of spiritual friendship that has been so important to, you know, 
the way you all walk each other home. Um, well, I, I felt some, some inkling of that um, through this road tour that some friends who I didn't actually know yet had organized. Um, and we took solar electric cars and drove them through India uh, from Chennai to Delhi. And, um, you know, we did climate leadership trainings um, at various places. You know, there were sort of ecstatic dance parties at, on the campuses of Infosys and, you know, other big tech companies in India. Um, we met people from all different strata of society. You know, there were people with um, biofuel, uh, fueled uh, bands who joined us. There was a solar powered band that sang amazing songs. So it was, it was quite a um, inspiring gathering. Um, and uh, it was organized by my friends Kartike Singh and Deepak Gupta, as well as you know many other people like Anna da Costa, Caroline Howe, um, and so many other folks who were in India at that time, feeling that India was at this crucial inflection point. This was right before the um, Copenhagen Climate Change um, Convention in 2009. And you know, we all felt like there was an important message we had to we we could send that you know India could had had a different development trajectory from the West. And I often felt like maybe my role is to be that bridge, um, you know, between kind of the highly industrialized um, U.S. where I grew up and India, which you know is still coming into its own as an industrialized country. Um, and you know, I was very interested in the, in this idea of leapfrogging. You know, how can India avoid the mistakes that happened in the U.S. Um, and so, all of that informed my decision to travel along the river. Um, and you know, at the at the very last minute, I was just really lucky that I had the blessing of my mom. Um, she encouraged me to reconnect with my dad, who I was estranged from, and that's partly how I got to do some of the travels. Um, and she also connected me very generously to, you know, her her grandma's sister's son, Babu Mama, who connected me to his employee's mother-in-law, who happened to be living in Uttarkashi, um, which is one of the you know last cities before you get to the source yeah. of the Ganga mm -hmm. in India. Although, of course, it has other sources in Tibet which are sometimes forgotten these days because of politics. Um, and so with help from, you know, these folks um, and, uh, you know, several other sources, I was able to hire a travel guide, Mangal Singh, who took me to the Gangotri Glacier. And I saw, you know, big chunks of the glacier melting and falling into you know, what was becoming the, the origins of the, the, the stream. And in my book, I write about how tasting that meltwater is like tasting dew from the last ice age. Um, and I felt this sense of exhilaration and, um, you know, in different ways that exhilaration kept coming back to me um, as I immersed in the river and other spots downstream. Beautiful. Beautiful. And most other spots. I also talk about, you know, Mm. <laughs> some challenging yeah. <laughs> uh, encounters with the pollution in the river, for sure. Yeah. And pilgrimage is a, such an important possibility for waking up for 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 the path. And and I know um, that as you as you talk about it in the book, that going from place to place, it clearly was a pilgrimage. And uh, especially your walk up to the up to the beginning, the source of the Ganga in the, in the Himalayas, 
I remember doing those kinds of walks when I was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can they walk sounds not like quite a big enough word for the kinds of states you get in after trekking all day long <laughs> and being totally and completely exhausted at the end. And then when you finally get there, it's so you your whole body mind has been prepared by the walk um and um uh it's it, it's no wonder that you were awakened to the 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 mystery and the um essence of of the river when you were there um well um you said one of the things you you'd like to talk about was um deep allyship which is really resonates with me for sure as as you said my um i have a number of really close friends with whom i've been exploring this whole dimension from the time that we met in india um in 1970 and uh it's been so important to me. It's really hard to do it yourself. Um, that it you just need mirrors in other friends. You need that kind of support, loving support that keeps you going when things get really hard. Um, and um, yeah, just hearing that phrase, you know, I thought about so many late night talks or just times when we'd be in, on retreat together, maybe, and just be in silence. It didn't require words, but that kind of allyship and support for each other is really important. So mm. tell me what you've been thinking about it. Mm. Well, I love what you just shared. And, you know, I feel that it, I hope, as you were speaking, I was like, I hope that we can listen to this recording in the future and g- gain inspiration from what you just said. <laughs> um, I think for us, you know, <laughs> it looks more like a WhatsApp group and uh, in some ways the opposite of the, the, the depth that you just talked about. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I, I do feel my friend Deepa, she's probably the one who's most, um, you know, aesthetic or most connected to um, a guru and you know the the message of love all serve all has been a very critical part of her path and so she's kind of pulled us the rest of us into that in different ways um, uh, so that's the one of the first things that came up um, another thing I would say is just you know um, you and I have discussed before about how there's been cultural appropriation of yoga and meditation practices um, and in a way, one of the things that gets that's missing from you know contemporary understanding of yoga and meditation outside of India is how critical the Ganga and this idea of the Ganga as a living goddess was to you know the contemplative traditions that arose alongside the river. So when I say deep allyship, I mean that you know I would really love for all practitioners of any contemplative tradition that arose from India, whether it's Buddhism or yoga and meditation of a different stripe, um, even you know parts of the river are very sacred to Muslims in India. Um, so you know there are sacred spots for Sikhs and Jains as well. Um, so you know I would love for um, people outside of India to just 
kind of expand their understanding of these contemplative traditions to include the, the spirit-filled landscape from which they arose, um, you know, uh, and find their own ways of deeply allying with that landscape, with that spirit, and with the people who now populate that place. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Really. Yeah. I love the idea of of the landscape as ally and and as um, you know part of who we are, and and I think I I sent you that picture mm -hmm. of of the sunset um, over the Gunga, and I remember the I mean it was a long time ago when I did it, but um, I remember that feeling of the water and the sun and the whole environment and so much being a part of the whole thing, not separate in any way. Um, that's really great. Um, and I love that you have a watercolor you, you did 50 years ago yeah. that you were able to share with pressed flowers. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. <It's really> amazing. <laughs> Eternal. And, and if, I, if I remember correctly, you met Neem Karoli Baba in Allahabad, right? Which is that's right, right. right. influence of the Ganga. Absolutely. The yeah, we did. Uh, right after a mala, a kumbh mala, right near. Um, but yeah, uh, the river. Um, uh, mm. Well, I was thinking about the river as the river as goddess, and the river as mother, and the river as female in the in the Hindu imagination, if you say the sacred imagination, that um, that the river. Is a goddess and and a mother and and of course feeds more people than any other river anywhere. I think, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think five hundred million people depend on. It. Yeah. So um, I say something about that because you have recently in your life become a mother. And um, how does that all fit together for you? Uh, thank you for that question. Well, I feel that um, my outer journey helped me heal the self-alienation of the colonial legacy um, by reconciling the unrecognized gifts of my grandmother um, as a body worker, as a cook who was informed by Ayurvedic tradition with the intellectual activities of my family. Um, which included a communist great uncle who wrote a legendary Bengali novel about the boatmen along the river Ganga. And I realized that there's a strong connection between my desire to offer body work as a somatic coach to women of color social innovators and my desire to protect the rivers because there's a river of life within our bodies. And the more we can feel and sense ourselves, the more we will feel and sense the rhythms and aliveness of the natural world and honor our inextricable interconnection. Um, another, another thing that has happened to me you know, since becoming a mother is I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called celiac. Um, and so over time, I, I have had to become extremely um, sensitive to what I'm actually eating and you know, how that food has been grown. Um, and so uh, it's been a blessing in some ways. And because of that, I'm 
you know, and just understanding how our soils have been depleted over time because of industrial agriculture and how much the quality of the the food, you know, and how well the, um, uh, you know, the creatures on it are treated, the, the, the workers are paid, all of that really influences our health as a whole. And I think um, something about our current society, we don't see that. And so I feel that we must always be moving towards, you know, a, a, an ideal of a very different food and farming um, system that's grounded in justice. Um, and I, I definitely feel that, you know, earlier, maybe some of that was more abstract to me. You know, I, I feel it very viscerally. Yeah, I can hear that you feel it in your body in 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 everything. It happened to me when I uh, worked those years in Guatemala with Save a Foundation um, with Mayan people who are so one with the land, not the river. Um, I mean, there's water uh, running through, of course, but um, but so much with the land and. I had never really understood how that could be possible before, but um, but there I saw it and felt it and knew it so much that when I came back, I mean, I was coming and going all the time, but during that time, I moved out of the city and out here into the country so that we could grow some corn and beans and and uh, just feel that feel that important connection with food. And with the land, so I'm so glad you said that because mm -hmm. we are brought up not to really think it's very important. You know, we get good food from the grocery store or not. But um, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I I I taught in the here in the city of Springfield um, for a while, uh, an alternative program for young African American men who had dropped out of school. But they, many of them had no idea where food came from, did not know. <laughs> and they were only a couple of generations separated from it from the South where their parents were working on the land, not, not parents, but grandparents and great grandparents. Um, yeah, it's so important. I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, we don't hear it often enough. Um, so I asked about. Well, that was part of one of the things that a, a sage. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. Oh, all I was going to say is um, there's a there's a sage that I met um, named Swami Vidya Deshananda, um, and he said that you know one of the um, there's a lot of melting wisdom that's coming down from the glaciers to us. And oh. he feels that Ayurveda and kind of that particular worldview is perhaps what's most relevant um, for modern people. And yeah, you know, and I've been on my own journey to try to understand Ayurveda. I, you know, highly recommend a book called The Paleo-Vedic Diet. It's been, uh, you know, it's, it's written by one of my doctors and it's a really great book that sort of tries to combine um, you know, a lot of different paradigms, including science. Um, and even for me, like I, I now, you know, have picked and chosen a diet that's different from the traditional Ayurvedic, but that perspective has definitely informed me a lot. And so, you know, for our generation, I feel like there's this kind of um, bridge building between science and spirituality, you know, that we must do. And 
um, one of the people who most inspired me in that um, to to think that way was the late priest hydro, hydrologist Virbhadra Mishra, um, who told me that science and spirituality are like two banks of the same river. Um, he was hailed by Time Magazine as a hero of the environment because he had some very visionary ideas and practices around cleaning the river. Sadly, some of them, you know, didn't really get implemented for political reasons. Um, and, you know, being hosted by him in Varanasi, swimming in the river with millions of other people during a total solar eclipse, um, it mm inspired me to ask the question, you know, what will the Ganga be like in the year 2132 when we'll see another total solar eclipse of a similar duration? And that question, or rather the possibility that science and spirituality can shape a new consciousness and that we can learn from the stories of change makers past now drives me. Um, and so, you know, I, I would love to hear more about what you're saying um, with regard to your experiences with the Seva Foundation. Um, because, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been really struck by in your stories is how, you know, you and your friends, you've been going at this for 50 years. You know, you're still in touch. You're still working on the same issues that you were passionate about when you were younger. There have been many ups and downs. And I just feel that that, that is so inspiring. Um, and we need to hear more of those stories. Mm. Yeah. The main message is it doesn't stop just keeps on going and and um yeah f 50 years feeling <laughs> like just beginning fortunately i now think that i do have other lives coming up so <laughs> i'm I, i'm not so worried about my spiritual to-do list <laughs> as i used to be <laughs> um <laughs> Well, we don't have too much time left, but I, I, I know one of the things um, that you mentioned that that um, you've been interested in is, um, uh, is you, you said feminist queer reclaiming of mythology. I, I want, I want to hear that. I worked for some years. I did a whole series of groups of women's groups where we just come together and it was really women in spirituality, but, um, uh, and we'd come together and do all kinds of art projects together and just share our stories and so on. And, um, but a lot of it was, um, uh, relooking at women in mythology. So, I want to hear what you have to say about feminist queer reclaiming of mythology. Well, one thing I never knew before I researched this book is that Bhagirath, um, who is, you know, one of the mythological heroes um, whose story gets told and there's statues of him, you know, up in the Himalayas um, because he supposedly atoned for the ecological sins of his ancestors who had sort of pillaged um, through the land by doing tapasya or austerity for um, hundreds of years, you know, mm. and begging the Ganga to come down to the earth. Um, and she finally did, you know, impressed by the quality of his devotion. And um, what I never knew is that according to mythology, he, his name Bhagirath, it actually, Bhaga means vulva, uh, and he was born from two mothers. Um, uh -huh. And I tell that story in my book. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. in the sort of mainstream image of him as this bearded sage, we never hear that. Um, and, you know, 
in in uh, Vikram Shila Dolphin Sanctuary in Bihar, you know, there are images of uh, God as dual, both male and female, or the narrator. Um, and, you know, those images are very popular. And, you know, I feel that some of those less known images are not part of the mainstream story. Um, I have a chapter in my book called Wild Woman's Ganga, in which I talk about the forest goddess Bonbidi um, and the plucky anthropologist, Professor Onujale, who led me to, um, you know, the tiger charmers who dream about the forest goddess. And that's how they learn about, you know, how to assess what is safe or not safe um, when they venture into the forest. So these are a lot of the lesser known stories that, you know, I hope to bring to the forefront with my book. Um, and, you know, you had asked me to read a little bit um, about some of the maybe spiritual things that I had learned. There's a lot of different parts, but one one thing that might be relevant here is, um, you know, on, on my way to the stagnant, once plague-ridden backwaters of Gaur and the vast Faraka Barrage, a big dam at the mouths of the river, um, in West Bengal, um, where right after I visited the Firoz Minar, which was built by the first Ethiopian ruler of Bengal, Firoz Shah, um, because from for a few brief years, 1487 to 1493, Ethiopian warrior slaves ruled Bengal. Um, so we don't wild. know about that either, you know, yeah. but all we see are these forgotten monuments. Mm. Yeah. Um, so um, right after I saw that, you know, um, on my way to the stagnant, once plague-ridden backwaters of Gaur, which was actually once a mighty city, like, you know, during the age of Vasco da Gama, they would, in Italy, they would, in Portugal, they would talk about this as one of the wealthiest cities in the world, but plague had completely devastated it. And so just south of Murshidabad, I saw an enormous priest, ashen and blue-gray, and this compelled me to stop at the river's edge. The figure of a girl, her turbulent flowing hair frozen in stone, had placed a stiff, pallid lump near the Buddha's feet. Her hands were folded in prayer. With every bone of her body, she seemed to be besieging the Buddha, who was avoiding eye contact with her, looking inwards, one hand touching the earth as he meditated under a thick-leaved banyan tree, whose aerial roots snaked around tiny embossed birds, a miniature elephant, and the Buddha's serene halo. And the frieze led to a second story, a tall pink building streaked with grime and mildew. Three pyramidal spires were stacked atop the roof above small steamy glass windows lined with ashen blue rims. The walls were palimpsests, their present dirty pinkness obscured Bengali letters that had faded to faint ultramarine. The only legible words were electric crematorium. And so I talk about meeting the... Uh, crematorium operator and how, you know, these days uh, cremations don't happen, you know, with open fires right next to the river as much as they did before, you know. Um, and I asked about the woman in the freeze. And of course, you know, the way I described her, that's very much my interpretation. Um, but the operator said, you know, you don't, he asked me impatiently, you don't know the story of Kisa Botami? I know the story. I'll tell her, my uncle Fonku, who had accompanied me, said, and there at the river's edge, Fonku uncle told me about Kisabotami. She was a woman who went mad after her son died. She roamed from house to house asking for a potion that would cure him. She was told to consult the Buddha. He agreed to bring her the potion he asked for, she asked for on one condition, that she bring him a mustard seed from a family that has never known death. 
Kisagotami wandered from home to home, asking her mad question until finally her madness gave way to clarity. She returned to the Buddha and became one of his disciples. And near the end of her life, it is said, she attained enlightenment, perhaps an indirect expression for saying that she accepted her loss. You know, I I told that story in the book I just did with Ramdas too, Walking Each Other Home, um, which was about dying mainly. Um, That's why I wanted to read it. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, but uh, I love that story. Yeah, and and it's it's well, it is. You told it also. It's told in Buddhist context, but it's not usually told in other places. Um, that is really great. Well, I, I, I one thing I love about your book and the story is just. Oh, sorry. Do you want to wrap up? I think we do. You can finish your sentence, though. Go ahead. Okay. Um, oh, well, just one thing I love about the book and your story um, in the book is, you know, there's a, a depth of engagement with dying and how it actually informs how we can love more fully. And, you know, I feel that um, some of that depth was a key part of Indian civilization, thanks to the way in which people understood death, at least in the Hindu context, you know, as being inseparable with the river. So there are stories of people who would just go sit by the river when it was time to die, and they would just wait there potentially for months or years to be cremated in the river. And I feel that maybe, you know, I just wanted to share that because sometimes these days in a very modern context, that level of comfort with death, um, you know, has been stripped away. Um, and the idea that you would just go hang out by the river until you died you <laughs> yeah. know, is, um, is not so accessible. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to thank you for the book because I feel like by reading the book, you can understand a little bit of that quality of depthful engagement. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow. This was so great. Only, only beginning. We're going to have to do this a few more times. <laughs> this is really great. Thank you so much, Badisha. I loved it. And um, now we'll get practical. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, um, Badisha's book is called Superhuman River. That's easy to remember. And uh, the subtitle is Stories of the Ganga. And it is available on Amazon. And we don't usually, you know, but do a big push for Amazon, but is published in India and not in this country. Of course, it's in English, but, uh, and it's a beautiful book. Um, I'm beautiful looking as well as reading. Uh, and, but you can get it on Amazon. So um, I encourage you to, because I just completely loved it. And uh, thank you so much. This was really great. And uh, may you, May you continue on your path of, of awakening yourself in and through that, coming up with more creative ideas and commitment to doing what you can for the great Mother River, the Ganga. Thank you, dear. Thank you so much, Mirabai. Um, and, you know, along those practical lines, I just wanted to share, um, I've recently launched a newsletter that people can access from my website. Good. And it's a monthly update on, you know, how things are going with the Ganga, 
um, with, you know, uh, also updates from some of the, the people that I've interviewed, um, including the dolphin experts. Um, and I would love people who care about the river to engage because um, one of my goals is to avert the extinction of the river dolphin in our lifetime. That is fabulous. That you'll get, I think, a lot of response to that. Ramda swam with dolphins and loved them. These are different dolphins, I know, but um, and so your um, your website is badishabanerjee.com. and I think that all this information will also be available through the Be Here Now Network after. But this is one of my first podcasts, so I'm. Not totally sure how it works yet, <laughs> but um, so badishabanerjee.com <laughs> and Amazon and uh, stay. I have a friend who used to say, stay in mad touch. So that's my message to you, Badisha, and to everybody out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.